Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process so you can find talent with the skills you need through tools like Indeed Instant Match Assessments and Virtual Interviews. Go to Indeed.com slash Peter to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Today's podcast is also sponsored by NetSuite. NetSuite is the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite, and for the new year, NetSuite has a new financing program for those ready to upgrade at netsuite.com gold. Today, we got the highly anticipated CPI report for December. And what's more significant, of course, is that it's the final month of the year. So now we have the results for the inflation rate for all of 2021. And the expectation was that for December, we would see an increase of 0.4. And we actually beat that slightly with an increase of 0.5. Although the anticipated year-over-year increase of 7.1, for some reason, we actually came out a little below that. 7.0 was the number. Still a seven handle on the CPI for the year. This is the worst CPI officially in 39 years. You have to go back to 1982 to get a CPI that bad. Of course, if we were still measuring inflation using the same CPI that we used in 1982, 2021's inflation would have been higher than 1982. In fact, it would have been the highest in history. In fact, if you simply substitute owner's equivalent rent for home prices, because in 1982, home prices were what they were using for that component of the CPI. So if we substitute home prices 
for owner's equivalent rent. After all, nobody actually pays owner's equivalent rent. It's not like actual rent where you write a check to your landlord. Owner's equivalent rent is some made-up number that some random people guess. And for some reason, they're always guessing low. I wonder why. But according to the government, housing costs as measured by owner's equivalent rent were up 3.8% for the year. Meanwhile, actual home prices were up about 16.5% on the year. So if you take owner's equivalent rent out and put home prices in, you get 10% increase for the CPI in 2021. But of course, that's not the only dishonest part of the CPI because we now have hedonics and substitution and all sorts of gimmicks that are used to compute the CPI today that they didn't use back in 1982. So if we really compared apples to apples and used the same methodology that was used in 1982, we probably would have reported a 15% CPI increase for 2021, making it the worst CPI in history, meaning the highest. And in fact, even if you strip out food and energy, the CPI was still up 5.5% on the year. And of course, it would be up more if we weren't playing around with those numbers. That 5.5% core year-over-year increase is the highest since 1991. But probably what's most significant is if you look at goods prices as opposed to service prices, because goods prices alone were up 10.7% in 2021. Of course, they were up more than that if we didn't use the government's adjustments. But even after it was adjusted, in other words, rigged, the government still reported a 10.7% increase in goods prices. That's the biggest increase in one year since 1975. And one of the things that held that number down in December was the fact that energy prices were actually down. That has already been reversed. We've had a huge increase in energy prices. Look at oil prices today alone, oil up another buck and a half. We're over $82 a barrel, but oil has been very strong. In fact, I think we can hit a new 52-week high this week in oil. We can get over $85 a barrel, but everything is going up. All these commodities are going up. You know, copper was up 3% today. Across the board, we're seeing strength in commodity prices. All of this, of course, is going to be bleeding into the CPI all year. And so the numbers are only going to get worse. And even if you look at services, because a lot of people are trying to claim, well, it's all because of goods. Consumers are spending a lot more on goods, and that's why goods prices are up. They're not buying services. Well, services were still up. 3.7%. That's the biggest increase in service prices since 2007. I mean, if no one is buying services, if we're just buying goods, why are service prices going down? They're not. They're still going up at a faster pace than they've gone up since 2007. So it's not just goods. It's goods and services. Everything is getting more expensive. Everything is way above the Fed's so-called 2% target. The only thing that's not rising that much are wages. Real wages continue to fall. In fact, they've now been down for nine weeks in a row. Year over year, real wages declined by 2.4%. Of course, they actually declined by much more than 2.4% because the 2.4% is adjusting nominal wages by 7% inflation. 
but anybody who is earning wages is paying much higher price increases than 7%. Again, I said nobody is paying owner's equivalent rent. I mean, maybe the government should take food out and put eater's equivalent food. Maybe we should take energy out and put energy users equivalent energy. I mean, why just make up prices for anything? I mean, if we're going to use a phony price for home prices, why not use a phony price for food, a phony price for energy, a phony price for clothing, a phony price for everything, right? Just make the whole number up. Now, maybe that's exactly what the government is going to do. Over time, they're going to have to come up with all sorts of new gimmicks to try to make that number lower because there's no way they're going to make it lower honestly. So the only way to do it is to dishonestly report the number. But consumers are going to have to live in the real world, not in the government's fantasy world. And so real wages are going to continue to plunge, even as some politicians want to claim credit for the fact that the nominal wages are going up. But again, I've mentioned on the podcast, the real losers are not the wage earners. I mean, they lose, but they don't lose nearly as big as retirees who don't have any wages, who have some type of fixed incomes. And these fixed incomes are being eviscerated And it's going to be much worse, I think, in 2022 than it was in 2021. Now, one of the very interesting aspects of today's inflation report, which was slightly worse than expected, right? A little bit hotter on the December number, not necessarily the year over year number. But my guess is they're probably going to tweak that number up in January. And we're probably going to find out that the CPI was up more than 7% for 2021. But even if it's just 7%, that's still a big deal. That's still bad news. And one of the frustrating aspects of the markets during pretty much all of 2021 is that every time we reported a bad inflation number, which was pretty much every time we reported an inflation number, because they were all bad, they were all worse than expected, we had the perverse and frustrating counterintuitive reaction in the markets where the dollar went up and gold went down. And that would be very frustrating for my clients because they own foreign stocks, they own mining stocks, because of inflation. And now we're getting all the inflation that we anticipated, but instead of our inflation hedges going up, our inflation hedges were going down. Why? Again, I've explained it on the podcast. It's because investors were looking beyond the inflation numbers to the rate hikes that were going to follow and this successful battle that the Fed was going to wage against inflation. And it was the anticipation of this tighter monetary policy that was going to be triggered by these hot inflation numbers that was putting downward pressure on gold and upward pressure on the dollar. Well, today we got this 7% handle, bad news on inflation. We get surging commodity prices that indicate that more upward pressure is going to continue in 2022. Yet instead of the dollar going up, it got clobbered. And the fact is, the dollar was down big yesterday, and then it was down even bigger today. In fact, we dropped better than one full percent on the dollar index. It actually traded above 96 two days ago. It closed right about 96, and today it closed below 95, 94 spot 32. It was down almost 70 basis points on the day after being down maybe 40 basis points yesterday. So it was a one-two punch 
for the US dollar. And what this indicates to me is investors are realizing that it doesn't matter if the Fed hikes rates because any rate hikes that we get are going to be too little too late to do anything to derail this inflationary freight train. And the reality is interest rates are historically negative. If inflation is 7% and interest rates are zero, we're at negative 7% interest rates. All the Fed is talking about doing is slowly raising interest rates to 2% over the next two years. Even if they do that, if inflation stays at 7%, you're going from negative 7% to negative 5%. That is not a positive environment for the U.S. dollar. And investors are starting to realize that, and they are dumping dollars. Now, they didn't rush into gold today, but at least they didn't dump it. Gold was up about $4.5 today. We closed just over $18.26, but at least it wasn't down because that's typically what's been happening when we get these inflation numbers. Gold goes down. Well, it didn't go down, but you know what went up? Silver. Silver was up about 40 cents today, back above 23. I think we closed around 23.16. That's a 2% move, which is a pretty good move in the price of silver. Silver stocks had a nice day, not a phenomenal day, but they had a good day. Gold stocks were up as well, but not as much as industrial material type companies, copper, nickel, other raw materials, energy companies, the oil companies hitting 52-week highs. In fact, the rotation that I've been talking about continued today. The rotation is out of momentum into value and also out of domestic stocks into foreign stocks. That is one of the reasons that the dollar is tanking. Because if you're a foreign investor and you want to get money out of U.S. stocks to buy foreign stocks, well, you're also selling U.S. dollars because when you sell a U.S. stock, you get paid U.S. dollars. But then if you want to buy a stock in Europe or Asia, you need the currencies of those exchanges. So you have to sell the dollars to get the currencies that you need. And that is what is going on. I mean, look at the Kathy Wood Arc Innovation Fund down 2.8% today. That really tells you what is going on in the world of momentum stocks. And by the way, it would have been a lot worse for Arc. But for Tesla, which happened to be up 4% today for some reason, but that's like 10% of their fund. So you can imagine how bad all the other stocks did if their biggest position was up 4%, yet the fund still managed to be down close to 3%. This rotation is just getting started and it's going to continue for years and years and years. The bubble inflated over a period of years. It's going to deflate quicker, but it's still going to play out over an extended period of time. But I think a lot of the gains will be front loaded in that the gains for rotating early will be much greater than the gains to those who rotate late. Meaning the sooner you can read the writing on the wall and react, I think the greater the profit. Now, some people are going to be like deer in a headlight. They've been following this momentum strategy for so long and they've fallen in love with their stocks, it's going to be a while before they sell them. They're not going to be able to recognize what's changed. You know, they have this buy the dip mentality and they think, well, if we just hold and hope, uh, it's going to come back. Well, it's not going to come back and it's going to take a long time for some people to recognize that and throw in the towel. But the people who recognize it early and make the shift will be in a much better position. Of course, I made the shift a long time ago. 
I had no idea a decade ago that it would take this long for this rotation to begin. I thought that the markets would have wised up sooner and started moving out of U.S. stocks, out of the dollar, into foreign stocks, into value stocks earlier. Well, they didn't do it earlier. They're doing it now. They have a lot of catching up to do because during the interim, U.S. stocks got even more overpriced on a relative basis than the rest of the world. And more importantly, the problems in the U.S. economy got even bigger, especially this inflation problem that the Fed is powerless to do anything about. And in fact, if you were foolish enough to actually think the Fed was going to do something about inflation, yesterday's Senate confirmation hearing should have cleared up any confusion because yesterday Jerome Powell basically went before the United States Senate for what amounts to a job interview because yes, he's been Fed chairman for one term and he's been renominated for a second term and now the Senate has to decide whether or not he should be confirmed. Now, of course, just looking at the report card that we got on inflation, 7%, the worst in 40 years, that alone should disqualify Powell for renomination, right? I mean, he got an F. He got an F minus on his report card. I mean, why would you hire that guy again, given what a disastrous job he's done with his first term? Because if you figure, okay, the Fed has a dual mandate, low unemployment and low inflation, you can say, okay, we'll give you an A on unemployment. 3.9%, that's really low. Forget about the labor force participation rate, but we'll give you an A on unemployment. But your other mandate, which Powell admitted during the hearing was as important as unemployment, your mandate on price stability, well, you got an F there. So even if you average A and F, what's that, a C? I mean, if someone's done a C job, why renominate him? Can't we find an A student somewhere? You know, someone who could do a good job to be Fed chairman? Why are we renominating somebody who's done at best a C job? But certainly, I think that inflation and price stability is actually more important than the unemployment rate. I don't actually think that the Fed should have anything to do with unemployment. In fact, originally, there was only one mandate, and that was price stability. So if you judge Powell's performance based on that mandate alone, it's just a flat out F. The guy needs to be fired. We need to find somebody better than that. I mean, it can't be that this man is the most competent, the best guy for the job, given what a lousy job he's already done. Now, of course, you know, there are some other mandates that are kind of unwritten. They don't really exist, but clearly they're there. One is the stock market. So the stock market is still pretty high. So I guess they like that, right? He's helping to keep the stock market propped up. But another mandate, I think, that's not really a mandate, but it's a mandate as far as Congress is concerned, is keeping the government propped up, funding the deficits, monetizing the debt. And he's been doing a good job on that, at least from their perspective. But from my perspective as an American citizen, that's not what the Fed is supposed to do. The Fed is supposed to be independent and acting as a break against reckless government spending, not encouraging it and subsidizing it. So from the American people's perspective, he's done a horrible job. And you would think at least during this interview to be reappointed to that job, there would have been some tough questions. Some people would have been saying, hey, wait a minute. I mean, why should we put you up here again? I mean, you did such a lousy job the first time. I mean, what if you do a lousy job again? Think about all the things that Powell has already admitted he got wrong. 
Because if you listen to the hearing, he goes over a long list of stuff that he got wrong about inflation, about supply chains, about transitory. And the only excuse Powell had is that everybody else got it wrong too, right? That all the other economists had the same wrong expectations that he did. And I don't think that's true. I mean, certainly, I mean, I didn't have those expectations, but I think a lot of the private sector forecasts that he's saying made the same errors, I think they were basing their forecast on what the Fed was doing. I mean, like the Fed was the leader. And since the Fed was saying inflation was transitory, well, everybody else was like, well, it must be transitory. I mean, they have all this information. These are the smartest guys. And if the Fed thinks it's transitory, who are we to disagree? So I think everybody was just kind of following the Fed's lead. And now for the Fed to blame their mistake on the fact that the people following their lead got it wrong too? Of course they got it wrong too, because they were simply mindlessly regurgitating the nonsense that was coming from Powell and his buddies at the Federal Reserve. But regardless of whether you got it wrong on your own or whether or not there are a lot of other people who got it wrong, why don't they find one of the guys that got it right? Because there are some people that got it right that we're warning about the inflation why not bring one of those guys up instead of somebody who is so wrong it's a new year and you deserve a fresh start in all parts of your life even at work take your team to the next level with a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills that's indeed indeed is a hiring partner that gets you what you really want a short list of quality candidates as fast as possible because you can do it all on indeed attract interview and hire so don't struggle on your own to find quality candidates indeed can help you hire the right people right now indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process so you can find talent with the skills you need using tools like indeed instant match assessments and virtual interviews with indeed instant match as soon as you sponsor a post you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on indeed match your job description and you can even invite them to apply right away the perfect job candidate is out there somewhere you just need indeed to help you find them and finding great talent doesn't have to be your second job. You can do it faster and better by partnering with Indeed. In fact, with Indeed Instant Match, over 90% of employers get quality candidates as soon as they sponsor their job post, according to Indeed data. And candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job than those who only see it in search, according to Indeed data. So get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. You can get a $75 credit at Indeed.com Peter. Indeed.com slash Peter. This offer is valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. But anyway, I want to start talking about the Q&A portion of the hearing. I mean, forget about the prepared remarks. I mean, you know, there's status quo. Everything is great as far as the Fed's concerned, except inflation is higher than they thought. And, you know, they're just going to tweak it a little bit. And don't worry, it's going to come right back down. But I want to talk about some of the things that were said during the Q&A. Now, there were some Republicans who pointed out that we have a lot of inflation. And of course, you know, the Republicans want to blame it all on the Democrats and their deficit spending and the fact that they passed another stimulus after the initial stimulus. And yes, that is part of the problem. I mean, I don't want to let the Democrats off the hook, but I also don't want to let the Republicans off the hook because a lot of these Republicans who are criticizing Democrats for voting for spending, 
They voted for a big bailout when Trump was president. COVID started on Trump's watch. And that whole initial bailout where, you know, we, we gave business owners a bunch of money. We started stimulus checks. That mistake happened on Trump's watch. And all the Republicans who are now critical of the Democrats were very much supporting printing a bunch of money, running big deficits, and stimulating the economy in the early days of COVID. That was a mistake. In fact, most of the inflation we're experiencing now is a byproduct of that stimulus. The stimulus that the Republicans are blaming for the inflation of 2021, that's probably not even going to show up until this year or next year. That's one of the reasons it's going to get so much worse. No, the 2021 inflation is largely a result of the deficit spending of 2020 for which the Republicans were completely in favor of. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And of course, when the Republicans are blaming the Democrats for the spending, for some reason, they're letting Powell and the Fed off the hook. If you recall what Powell was saying in 2020, he was begging the government for fiscal stimulus, run big deficits, and he was reassuring them, don't worry, I got your back. I will print all the money that you need to cover the deficits. Don't worry about interest rates going up. We got your back. So you can't blame the Democrats for voting for deficits and not blame the Fed for telling the Democrats to produce the deficits because the Fed was going to monetize them. Again, think about the absurdity of what we were doing. We were ordering people not to go to work, to stay at home, but then we were also ordering them to keep on spending. Even though they were no longer working and being productive, we wanted to keep on spending. So we printed up a bunch of money and gave it to them so they can buy stuff that didn't exist because we weren't making it. And now everybody is shocked that the prices are going up 
when we did exactly what any Econ 101 textbook would say would happen. You have more money chasing fewer goods. Supply of goods goes down. The supply of money goes up. You don't have to be a rocket scientist or have a PhD in economics to understand that prices are going to go up. Yet Powell spent most of that hearing blaming rising inflation on just the supply side, supply shortages. And Powell claimed that, hey, we only control demand. We have no control over supply. And most of the problem has to do with supply. But of course, it takes two to tango. Prices are not just determined by supply. They're also determined by demand. And under normal circumstances, had the government done the right thing, both supply and demand would have gone down. And so prices may have remained stable. But instead of demand going down, the Fed and the government did the wrong thing and they made demand go up. In fact, in response to some of these questions, Powell admitted that even when the Fed raises interest rates and stops doing quantitative easing, he said that the policy is still accommodative, that even after rates rise, he said the Fed is still going to be providing accommodative monetary policy to the markets, which is a true statement. That's been my point all along. But if we have an inflation problem, if inflation is at 7%, why are we accommodating with easy money? If the Fed really wants to fight inflation, you can't fight inflation with an accommodative policy. That's the type of policy that you have when there is no inflation. When you're trying to stimulate a weak economy, that's when you do loose monetary policy. That's Keynesianism. What he's doing now is the opposite. Keynes would say, we have an inflation problem. We need a restrictive monetary policy. In fact, it sounds like maybe one of these senators actually listens to my podcast. Because on, I don't know if it was my last podcast or two podcasts ago, but I talked about this when it comes to Keynes, that Keynes did not believe in perpetual deficits, that he believed in deficits during bad times and surpluses during good times. So on balance, you don't go into debt. You pay back the debts that you accumulate when times are bad, when times are good. And one of the senators pointed this out when he had a chart of the national debt going up every single year. And he said, wait a minute, when are we going to pay down the debt? Keynes said, we have to run surpluses during good times. You're telling us we have good times. Where's the surplus? And Powell admitted that, yes, that's what Keynes said, but clearly that's what we're not doing. So we're not Keynesians when we only talk about running deficits during bad times and we never talk about paying them back by running surpluses during good times. But the point is, Powell is reassuring the senators that the Fed is providing accommodative monetary policy at the same time he's promising to fight inflation. You can't do both. You can't fight inflation with an accommodative policy. Again, you can't put out a fire with gasoline. But that is what Powell is bluffing that he is going to do. Now, what Powell basically said, his justification for keeping a loose monetary policy in the face of high inflation, he continues to claim that the supply problems are going to resolve themselves. That during the course of 2022, we're suddenly going to have an increase in supply and that's going to push prices down. And so the Fed is going to be able to remain accommodative and inflation is still going to fall because of this big increase in supply. So in other words, 
even though the Fed or Powell has claimed that they were wrong about inflation being transitory, they're basically still clinging to that lie because they're just saying the transition is going to take longer than we thought because they think the inflation problem is going to take care of itself. Because again, there were some Republicans that pointed out the absurdity of fighting 7% inflation with these tiny rate hikes. And the only reason Powell said it was going to work was because he's counting on supply to do the heavy lifting. Well, why would he count on that? I mean, the Fed has been so wrong in their estimates of transitory. They've been looking for these so-called supply bottlenecks to unclog all last year. And they got it wrong all last year. Well, what if they're wrong again? And, you know, Powell admitted what they would do because a senator asked them, well, what happens if we don't get a big increase in supply and so inflation doesn't come down? And Powell said, well, if inflation stays high and it doesn't fall the way we expect, well, we'll just have to raise interest rates more than we currently plan. Well, that is the problem. They can't. I don't even know if they can raise rates as much as they've already planned, even though that's barely enough. But the Fed is saying, hey, if we get it wrong again, and of course, why should they get it right? They're on such a losing streak. Why would they now win, right? I mean, it's not that they're due. They don't understand the problem. They clearly don't get it. That's why they've been so wrong. And they're still clinging to the same philosophy. You know, I think it's kind of like a field of dreams monetary policy. The Fed is living in this fantasy land and they just think if we print it, the supply will come, right? They think we can keep on with our easy money supply, but just eventually the goods are going to be there. As long as people want to buy stuff, eventually the stuff for them to buy is somehow going to magically appear. It doesn't work that way. Stuff has to be produced before it's consumed. It's supply that creates demand, not printing money. Printing money just leads to inflation or printing money just is inflation. And that's what we're going to get. I mean, think about the absurdity of what the Fed is claiming it's going to do, right? It's going to raise interest rates slowly to 2% over the next two years in the face of 7% inflation. Well, just go back to 2018. Inflation ended 2018 with a year-over-year increase of 1.9%. So in other words, we were below the Fed's 2% target. So we didn't have an inflation problem as far as the Fed was concerned. The only problem might have been it was slightly too low, right? They like to hit 2%, and we missed it by a tenth, right? 1.9. So not a real problem. Unemployment rate was 3.9, which happens to be exactly where it is right now. But GDP for the whole year grew at only 2.9%, below 3%, so not high growth. And where were interest rates in December of 2018? 2.5% is where the Fed had rates. When there was no inflation to fight, rates were at 2.5%. And at that time, the Fed was planning more hikes. Now, they never delivered more hikes because the whole market imploded because rates had gone up to 2.5%. But the point is, we had no inflation problem And the Fed had rates at 2.5% and was going to increase them further. Here we are now, 2022, or the end of 2021, and we have 7% inflation, not 1.9%. So clearly, we have a huge inflation problem because inflation is triple what it was in 2018. And what is the Fed's plan? The Fed's plan is to raise interest rates very slowly so that in two years, they're at 2%. 
but 2% is still lower than the 2.5% the Fed was at in 2018 when it had no inflation to fight. Well, the point is, if 2.5% was an appropriate rate of interest when we had no inflation, how could 2% possibly be appropriate when we have a 7% inflation problem? The Fed needs to fight inflation. That would mean that rates would have to be higher now than they were when they weren't fighting inflation in 2018. And of course, they're not even talking about getting to 2% until the end of 2023. They're not even going to raise rates above zero until maybe March or April of this year. So we still have a few more months of zero and we still have a few more months of quantitative easing how is that possibly appropriate that's why some of these senators are looking at this in disbelief because there is no way that the fed can succeed in fighting inflation with the policy that it is forecasting in fact one of the crazy things about powell's blaming the situation on supply shortages is that he is acknowledging that the Fed is providing demand stimulus even now, right? The Fed admits, or Powell admitted, the Fed was currently stimulating demand and will continue to stimulate demand over the next couple of years as it's slowly raising rates because rates are still very low. Well, if you acknowledge a supply problem, there's a shortage of stuff, Why would you continue to stimulate demand? We already have too much demand because we don't have enough stuff. So why create more demand for stuff that does not exist? Obviously, prices are going to go up. None of his testimony makes sense until you actually understand what he's doing. Powell is basically admitting that the Fed has to continue to provide stimulus even though inflation is getting worse. And the only thing they can do is hope that it heals itself. Hope that inflation gets better on its own, which is what they've been hoping the entire time. But still, Powell is pretending that if the Fed is wrong, then they're going to get tough on inflation. Well, it's already clear that the Fed is wrong. They've been wrong for years. Why don't they get tough on inflation now? And the reason they're not getting tough on inflation now is because they can't. And if they can't get tough now, they certainly can't get tough later because the longer they wait to get tough, the harder it is because we have an even bigger problem on our hands. Look, if the Fed was willing to actually fight inflation, it would have already done it. It would have done it a long time ago. Remember when I pointed out when the Fed said, hey, we're not going to do what a central bank normally does and be preemptive. We're just going to roll the dice and take a chance that inflation is transitory. Why take that chance? Because if you're wrong, now you have a huge problem on your hands. It's better to nip it in the bud. But the problem the Fed had was that it couldn't nip anything in the bud because it had created such a massive asset bubble and debt bubble that even the slightest rate hike to fight inflation would have pricked it. So the only thing the Fed could do is bet it all on transitory. And no Fed would do that unless they felt they had no choice. Now, they had a choice that they were willing to do the right thing, but they're not willing to do that. So they had to just kick the can down the road. And they're still kicking it. And they're still pretending, well, if inflation stays high, well, then we'll do something about it. Because they already said, we think inflation is transitory, and that's why we're going to keep policy accommodative. Well, once they acknowledged 
that it wasn't transitory, they should have said, okay, well, now we have to remove the accommodation. We were wrong about inflation being transitory. And since we were wrong, now we need to have a restrictive monetary policy. They're not saying that. They said we were wrong about thinking it was transitory, but we're going to remain accommodated because we still think it's transitory. We think we were just wrong about the duration of the transition. And so we're still betting on transitory. So even though inflation is 7%, not 2%, we're going to sit back and wait. And then if it goes up to 14%, well, then we're going to do something about it. No, they're not because they can't do anything about 7% inflation. And if they can't do anything about 7% inflation, they sure as hell can't do anything about 14% inflation. So inflation is going to keep getting worse and worse. And the worst part about it is it is going to tip the economy into recession. And as I said in my last podcast, even though these rate hikes are not high enough to slow inflation, they are high enough to prick the bubble in these spec assets. And we're going to have a huge problem as the market has to get used to a smaller dose of heroin. And that's not enough. The addicts are counting on a larger dose. And when they don't get it, there's going to be convulsions in the market. So at some point, the markets and the economy are going to put pressure on the Fed to actually reverse any rate hikes that it may have gotten around to doing. And even if it has stopped quantitative easing, it's going to have to resume it. You know, somebody asked Powell a question about the debt, right? And whether or not, you know, it's sustainable. And Powell admitted that the path that we're on is unsustainable, but that the current level of debt is sustainable. But if we stay on this path, one day it will be unsustainable. Well, the only reason the current $30 trillion national debt is sustainable is because the Fed is enabling that by keeping interest rates at zero. And if the Fed were to allow interest rates to just normalize, well, then the debt would be completely unsustainable. So it's the Fed's monetary policy that is sustaining the deficit. But If the Fed is not going to monetize debt anymore, and if the Fed is going to be raising rates, why is anyone going to buy U.S. Treasuries at such low yields? They're not. So rates are going to have to skyrocket unless the Fed doesn't follow through with its planned commitment to shrink its balance sheet. The Fed is going to have to expand its balance sheet because that's the only way to keep interest rates from skyrocketing. Yes, it can keep short-term rates really low, but it can't keep long-term rates low unless it goes into the market and buys those bonds. So if the Fed does what it claims it's going to do, bonds are going to crash and long-term interest rates are going to soar. And if it wants to prevent that from happening, then it can't do what it claims it's going to do. It's going to have to ramp up the QE. But either way, we're going to get a big drop in the dollar. And maybe we got a small taste of that today with the dollar going down in the face of these hot inflation numbers when it had been going up based on the idea that the Fed was going to fight inflation, maybe now the dollar is going down based on the realization that either the Fed is going to lose that fight or it's going to give up and inflation is going to win by default. This is it. The putt to win the tournament. 
If you sink it, the championship is yours. But then on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Does that sound the way you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated financial software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budgeting, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow and it's all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increase their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. In fact, over 28,000 businesses already use NetSuite. For the new year, NetSuite has a new financing program for those ready to upgrade at netsuite.com gold. So head to netsuite.com gold for this special one-of-a-kind financing offer on the number one financial system for growing businesses. That's netsuite.com gold. You know, one of the interesting questions that one of the senators asked or points that he made with respect to quantitative easing is this senator, and I forget who it was, but he reminded Powell, and Powell acknowledged this fact, that when Ben Bernanke first came to Congress in 2009 and talked about quantitative easing, Bernanke said it was an emergency we weren't going to do it again. It was something that was temporary and it was very rare. And that's why they were doing it. In fact, a lot of people were accusing Ben Bernanke of monetizing the debt. And the way Bernanke was able to defend against that criticism was by claiming that we weren't monetizing the debt because it was only a temporary program. And that after the emergency was over, the Fed was going to sell any U.S. government bonds that it had acquired during the emergency. So the increase in the balance sheet was temporary simply as a result of the financial crisis. Now, of course, I was one of the few people that was publicly calling him out as being a liar. I was saying that, no, once you go down this road, there is no turning back. That once you do QE, you do QE2, you do QE3, you do QE infinity. That's why I was saying back then that we'd have more QEs than Rocky movies, that the Fed had checked us in to a monetary roach motel, because that's exactly what they did, because the economy becomes dependent on that drug. And then you can't take that drug away once you have an economy that's depending on the drug. A few times the Fed tried to take it away, as soon as there was withdrawal, they came right back with a bigger dose. So that's why we have this huge balance sheet now, and we're still doing QE. They started it in 2009. Obviously, it's not temporary if we've been doing it almost continuously ever since. And here we are, interest rates are still at zero in 2022. And so when Powell was asked about this and like, how do you justify this situation because Bernanke promised that it would be temporary and rare. And Powell's answer was, well, the problem is we found ourselves stuck in this low interest rate environment. And so we didn't really have the normal tools that a central bank would have to cut interest rates because they were so low. And so we had to resort to quantitative easing, not as a last resort, but as a first resort, because it was kind of really the only tool we had left in our toolbox to deal with stimulus because we were so close to zero on interest rates that it became a more of a normal policy rather than what Bernanke had initially believed would be just a rare thing in emergencies. And of course, Powell is acting as if 
The Fed is somehow trapped in this low interest rate environment. The Fed created the low interest rate environment. That's why it exists. The Fed brought interest rates down to zero. That's why they're so low. One of the reasons that I was so critical of taking interest rates from 5% to zero is because I said, how are you going to get them back up again? I said, it's one thing to slash them to zero. It's another thing to raise them back up again. Because by lowering interest rates to zero, you encourage all sorts of debt. And now when everybody is loaded up with debt, how do you pull the rug out from under them? How do you normalize interest rates when you have an abnormal amount of debt? So we're not just stuck in this low interest rate environment. The Fed trapped everybody in this low interest rate environment. And now the Fed is claiming it's like, well, because we're in this low interest rate environment, well, you know, we have no excuse but to use QE. They do have an excuse because they're the reason that interest rates are at zero. Raise interest rates. Why don't you, you know, don't complain that rates are at zero when you've got them stuck at zero. Look at the Fed's balance sheet. Where would interest rates be if the Fed's balance sheet wasn't so big? Obviously, the Fed is holding them down. And of course, the Fed is going to point to interest rates all around the world and say, well, they're low in Europe, they're low in Asia. Of course, we've got the reserve currency. We're basically setting monetary policy for the rest of the world. If we had normal interest rates, if interest rates were 4 or 5% in the United States, you think they'd be zero in Europe? Of course not. We are the ones that are setting this precedent. People are taking their cue from the Federal Reserve. Now, of course, they're going to break from the Fed because they're going to have to respond to this inflation problem, which is now global. It's not just a U.S. problem. It's happening all over the world. The difference is the rest of the world may be in a position to do something about their inflation. We're in no position to do something about ours because of the enormity of the debt that we have. One of the senators, though, was obviously concerned about what if the Fed is wrong, right? Because again, the Fed is saying that it expects the supply problems to go away and inflation to come down because of added supply. Well, maybe the Fed is wrong because they were wrong before. They assured everybody that it was transitory a year ago, and now they're admitting that they got it wrong, but they're asking people to accept their forecast again that, well, we got it wrong before, but trust us, we got it right now. Well, what if you get it wrong again? This senator wanted to know if the risk was high or low that inflation would surprise to the upside. And Powell really couldn't give him an answer. He didn't even want to say, you know, whether the probability was high or low. I think it's pretty obvious that the probability is high because nothing that is happening suggests that the problems are going to go away, especially since so much of the problem is not supply-related but demand-related. Again, look at our imports, record imports. We are importing more goods into this country than ever before. The problem is we've printed even more money than ever before. The problem is the supply of money not the supply of goods. And the Fed is not going to stop increasing the money supply. Meanwhile, there's already all this money that it's already put into the system that is going to continue to bid up prices for years. Even if the Fed were to do something to fight inflation, whatever it does, you wouldn't even see the consequences of that for a couple of years. We're still dealing with the money they printed in the past. Of course, the most ridiculous comments of all came from Senator Elizabeth Warren. She was basically trying to get Powell to blame the inflation on big corporations jacking up prices, gouging their customers because they didn't have enough competition. Now, of course, 
Powell, at least to his credit, pushed back against that, even though that would, in a way, let the Fed off the hook, right? If you try to switch the blame from money printing to price gouging. But he pointed out that that wasn't the case. And of course, it's not even close to being the case because she was talking about the biggest companies in America and how they dominate. But these are all tech companies. These aren't the companies that are raising their prices. I mean, a lot of these big tech companies, they're giving their stuff away. I mean, Facebook's not charging anything. Google's not charging anything, at least not to the public. I mean, nobody is complaining about the increased costs of using a search engine or their Facebook account. No one's getting higher prices for that. The prices that people are paying for food, energy, these are not the biggest companies in America that are providing these goods. It's all the companies. You know, it's a lot of small businesses that are passing on these price increases. And the reality that Elizabeth Warren refuses to acknowledge is that as big an increase that we had in consumer prices, we had an even bigger increase in producer prices. We're going to get those final numbers tomorrow, and I'll be able to point that out on my next podcast. But we already know that it's about a three percentage point delta between producer prices and consumer prices. So By definition, that disproves Elizabeth Warren's claim that businesses are gouging the customers. It's actually the customers who are gouging the businesses because the businesses are eating a large chunk of the price hikes. They have been reluctant to pass them on to their customers. They've been taking that bullet on behalf of their customers. Now, I said one of the reasons they were doing that is because they were believing the Fed and these other economists that were parroting the Fed that what they were experiencing was transitory. And so they didn't want to raise prices if it was just due to a temporary increase in their costs. But now that they realize that their costs have permanently increased, well, they have to raise prices even faster in 2022 to catch up to where they should be. And Elizabeth Warren was talking about how corporations have these big increases in profits. They don't. I mean, on a year-over-year basis, some of them have increases because they were making no money at the end of last year because everybody was in lockdown due to COVID. But if you normalize for that, a lot of companies are seeing substantial pressures on their margins because they haven't raised their prices enough to cover their increase in costs. And again, all that's going to change in 2022, but it's completely disingenuous for Elizabeth Warren to blame big corporations and claim we don't have enough competition. We have some kind of cartelization or monopolies going on and we need government to come in and break companies up and have more regulation. But you know what? Elizabeth Warren is laying the foundation. This is what's going to happen because as the inflation problem gets worse and worse, and it will, and of course, you know, the Democrats, not just the midterms, but they're going to want to reelect Biden or Harris or whoever else they may put up there at the top of the ticket, but they're going to have to find a scapegoat for all this inflation. They're not going to blame it on Jerome Powell. So they're going to want to blame it on capitalism, on greedy corporations, on price gouging. And so what is their solution going to be? It's going to be price controls. It's going to be to get the government even more involved in the economy because the government is going to blame capitalism for rising prices. But as soon as the government 
takes over, then the price increases are going to be even bigger. And the only way that they won't be is because there'll be price controls and so there'll be nothing to buy. And so the government can pretend that prices aren't going up, but they won't be going up because there's nothing to buy. And so what difference does it make if the goods that aren't available aren't going up in price if you can't buy them? And then the only way you can buy them is illegally on the black market where they've skyrocketed in price. But of course, when the government calculates prices, they're not going to include the stuff that you buy illegally on the black market, even if it ends up that the only stuff you can buy is the stuff you buy illegally on the black market. Of course, there were other Democratic senators with their normal talking points about climate change as if there's anything the Federal Reserve can do about climate change. Somehow they expect the Fed to solve climate change with monetary policy. Look, there are some real problems that the Fed should be dealing with. Climate change is not one of them. But that doesn't stop these Democrats from constantly bringing up climate change, playing politics in these hearings when they have absolutely nothing to do with monetary policy. The same thing with this identity politics and racism. You had one, I think maybe he was a Hispanic senator, but he made a big deal out of the fact that Hispanics are maybe 20% of the population. I forget exactly, but that nobody on the federal open market committee is Hispanic as if this is some kind of problem. And he said, this isn't right. The Hispanic Americans need to be represented at the federal reserve and they have no representation, nobody to look out for their interest. First of all, the Federal Reserve is not supposed to be political. They all admitted that during the hearings. They wanted to thank Powell for being independent. Well, if the Fed is not supposed to be political, why do we need Hispanics on the FOMC to look out for the interests of other Hispanics? And first of all, the whole comment is racist, meaning that the only way you can look out for the interests of Hispanics is if you are Hispanic yourself. That somehow if you're white or you're black, you're incapable of doing something that will help Hispanics, you need to be Hispanic. But of course, interest rate policy, monetary policy, doesn't know your gender, doesn't know your sexual orientation, doesn't know your race. All you can do is lower interest rates or raise interest rates. You can expand money supply or you can contract it. It's going to have the same effect on you regardless of where you fall into one of these categories, yet the Democrats feel that they have to act as if we need to appoint more Hispanics or maybe more African-Americans because that's the only way we're going to get monetary policy that helps African-Americans or Hispanics. Well, what policy is that? What policy would help Hispanics more than non-Hispanics? I mean, obviously, what all of these senators are getting at is that somehow they believe that Since minorities, on average, have lower incomes or lower net worths or have higher unemployment rates, that the Fed should somehow keep monetary policy loose and ignore inflation because we need to concentrate on unemployment because unemployment falls heavier on these minorities. And so we need more people on the Fed who are going to stimulate more so that we can help create jobs for these unemployed minorities without understanding that it's those unemployed minorities 
or even minorities who are employed that are the most affected by inflation. Inflation is a tax on middle-income people. The lower your income, the more the inflation tax burdens you. So if you're going to pretend that you're a champion of the low-income worker, yet you want more inflation, you're actually hurting the people that you're pretending to defend. The reality is it doesn't matter what gender or race or ethnicity any of these FOMC members are. We need good monetary policy for everybody. The problem is we're not getting good monetary policy at all. And if we changed the ethnicity of the FOMC members, we wouldn't change that either. Instead of demanding more Hispanics or more African-Americans, how about if we demand more competent people on the Fed, people that actually understand inflation and economics, people that will actually be independent and do the right thing. That's what the Hispanics need, not just a fellow Hispanic who's going to pursue the same bad monetary policy. They need somebody who's going to pursue good policy, and it doesn't matter what their gender is, and it doesn't matter what race they are. But of course, the elephant in the room that nobody wants to acknowledge is that what the senators want the Fed to do is impossible. There is no way to fight inflation without completely destroying the bubble economy that was inflated along with the money supply. And we're now seeing the consequences of that in consumer prices. But there simply is no interest rate that is high enough to kill inflation that won't also kill this phony economy. This phony economy can't live with an interest rate high enough to kill inflation. And nobody wants to acknowledge that point. None of these senators who claim they're upset about inflation and want the Fed to do something about it actually would want the Fed to do something about it because if the Fed did something, everything would implode and the Republicans in the Senate have as much blood on their hands as the Democrats. Anyway, enough about the absurdity of uh, the political theater on Capitol Hill. I want to talk a little bit more now about the absurdity about the theater going on in cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. We have had a bit of a rally in Bitcoin off the lows since my last podcast. We did break below 40,000. I think we probably hit some stops down there. And then, of course, we've had a rally, probably a manufactured pump rally that's setting everybody else up for the next dump. As I am recording this podcast, we're around 44,000 on Bitcoin. So we've had about a 10% bounce off the low, which to me looks like a pretty good opportunity for the people who didn't sell down at the lows to sell now. And in fact, if you happen to buy a little bit more down there for a trade, it seems like a nice opportunity to take your profits and sell into this rally. I wanted to comment, though, on a couple of interviews that I saw that I thought were particularly interesting relating to crypto. One was a CNBC interview with Paul Tudor Jones. Now, I've talked about Paul Tudor Jones on this podcast, and one of the things that I've been saying all along was that I thought Paul Tudor Jones was not going to be a long-term crypto hodler, that he's a trader, and I always thought that he would be selling out of his Bitcoin at some point. Now, Paul Tudor Jones was the first hedge fund guy to put his toe in the Bitcoin pool and test the water. 
And Paul Tudor Jones was the guy that everybody who was pumping Bitcoin pointed to, right? You see, he's the first one. Everybody else is going to follow his lead. And they always quoted what he said. He said that he was worried about inflation and he wanted to get inflation hedges. And he was buying Bitcoin because he thought it was the fastest horse in the race, meaning that of all the inflation hedges out there, Bitcoin would move up more than everything else. Now, he was buying gold, but he said he was also buying Bitcoin because it was the fastest horse in the race. And I've heard so many people over the past year repeating that line, fastest horse in the race, fastest horse in the race. Paul Tudor Jones, everybody holds him out. He's the poster boy for institutional adoption of Bitcoin. Well, based on his CNBC interview, I think he's already sold his Bitcoin and he just hasn't come out and said it yet. Now, why do I think that he's done that? Well, he was asked a question about Bitcoin and the host that asked him the question said, Paul, you know, you're in Bitcoin and Bitcoin was almost 70,000 and now it's at 40,000. What are your thoughts? What do you think right, about Bitcoin now? Now, Paul Tudor Jones didn't come out and say, well, this is a great buying opportunity. I mean, it's on sale. I'm buying more. I'm backing up the truck, right? He didn't say anything about this being an opportunity to buy Bitcoin or about him buying more Bitcoin. Now, maybe he wants to buy it, right? And maybe he wants the price to go down. But I don't think that's the way Paul Tudor Jones operates. I don't think he's that kind of guy. He's not Goldman Sachs. I think the guy has some integrity. Now, what he did say in response to the question was that he thought that 2022 would be a very difficult year. He said that all of the inflation hedges that worked well in 2021 would perform poorly in 2022. Now, what were those inflation hedges? Well, one of them were tech stocks. I remember a lot of people saying they were buying tech stocks as hedges against inflation. I'm not making this up. There are a lot of people that claimed that these big tech stocks were inflation hedges, right? Because they would go up faster than inflation. And so people were buying these stocks to hedge inflation. Well, it worked well in 2021. According to Paul Tudor Jones, it ain't going to work well in 2022. Well, what else worked well in 2021. Bitcoin. That's what he was asked about. What are your thoughts about Bitcoin? And his response was, well, I think the inflation hedges that did well in 2021 will do poorly in 2022. He's talking about Bitcoin. He bought Bitcoin as an inflation hedge and it did well in 2021. He is now saying that it's going to do poorly in 2022. Yes, I've been talking about the fact that people who bought Bitcoin in 2021 lost money, right? It was a horrible time to buy Bitcoin. But Paul Tudor Jones didn't buy in 2021. He bought before 2021. He owned it in 2020. I forget when he first bought. Maybe it was 2019. I don't remember exactly. But he was long going into 2021. And Bitcoin was up 60% in 2021. Sure, all those gains happened in the first five weeks of the year, but they were still gains. Bitcoin was up 60% in one year. That counts as doing well. Now, it was a lousy investment if you bought Bitcoin 
in 2021 unless you bought it in those first few weeks. But if you bought in February, March, April, May, you had a horrible year. But that's not what he said. He was talking about the total year. And in total, if you were long Bitcoin on January 1st of 2021 or December 31st of 2020, you had a good year. If you held Bitcoin all year long, you're up 60%. And what Paul Tudor Jones said is, hey, the inflation hedges that did well in 2021 won't do well. They'll do poorly in 2022. He certainly was talking about Bitcoin, especially since the question that he was responding to was specifically about Bitcoin. So here's Paul Tudor Jones, a hedge fund manager who is concerned about short-term performance because all of his clients are looking at short-term performance and he only bought Bitcoin because he thought it would be the fastest horse based on short-term performance. If he now has the view that Bitcoin is going to go down in 2022, which is the impression I got from what he said, if he thinks Bitcoin is going to go down this year, why would he own it? Why not sell it? He's not married to it. Why not do something else with the money? That's why I think he's already sold his Bitcoin. And if that is the case, I think that is huge news when it eventually comes out. Because again, he's been the poster boy for why everybody else is going to buy Bitcoin. And yet he may have already sold out. And that is a prediction that I was making. I've been saying ever since he bought it, that as soon as the technical picture turned, as soon as the momentum turned, he was out. Whether he had a profit or a loss, he would cut and run. He's a trader. He's not going to let the position get away from him. He's going to manage it. He's not married to it. Yes, he bought it because he thought it would be a fast horse because he thought other fools would buy it and see he was front running that trade. Well, we've run out of fools. I think it's obvious to Paul Tudor Jones that the music is stopping and I think he's already out. Now, some people might think, well, if he's going to get rid of his inflation hedges, wouldn't he also sell his gold? No. In fact, I think he's buying gold. Again, what did Paul Tudor Jones say? He said that the inflation hedges that did well in 2021 would do poorly in 2022. Gold would not be included in that category. Gold did not do well in 2021. It was down 4%. Silver was down even more than gold. So what I think is going to happen in 2022, and I think Paul Tudor Jones would agree with me, is that the inflation hedges that performed poorly in 2021 are the ones that are going to perform well in 2022. And that is jiving what we're already seeing. Because not only are gold and silver relatively flat on the year, while Bitcoin is lower, but these value stocks are moving higher as the momentum stocks are moving down. So people who thought they were hedging against inflation by buying high multiple tech stocks are now getting rid of those stocks because they weren't inflation hedges. They were bubbles. And now they're looking for legitimate inflation hedges in value stocks. So in other words, what Paul Tudor Jones is saying is that the fake inflation hedges that did so well in 2021 are going to go bust in 2022. And the real inflation hedges that nobody was buying in 2021, they're going to buy them in 2022. So I think he's basically validating my investment strategy. And it's just another reason to try to continue to press the bets that we've already made. Yes, we made them years in advance, but I think we're about to receive a much bigger payoff on those bets because during all the years of can kicking, the problems have gotten so much worse 
And now I think the return on the investments that ultimately benefit from the unwinding of this bubble, those returns are going to be much higher as well. Now, one more interview that I saw, and I can't remember if he was on Bloomberg. I think that's might have been Bloomberg, but I saw it on, on the internet. Somebody tweeted it out, and so I watched the video. But Bill Miller, uh, a well-known investor, billionaire, I think, said that he had half his net worth in Bitcoin, which, if he's a billionaire, is a lot of money. And I was listening to the interview, and the main reason he gave for buying Bitcoin and not gold, because you know, he said, you know, you could buy gold. And he said that, well, Roosevelt confiscated gold in 1933. And therefore, I don't want to buy gold and run the risk of it being confiscated. He said people, you know, went to jail. If you didn't turn in your gold, right, you could go to jail. And he said, so I don't want to take that risk. I want to buy Bitcoin because you can't confiscate Bitcoin. Therefore, it's safer than gold. So I am going to store my wealth in Bitcoin because it can't be confiscated. This is complete BS. I mean, first of all, when Roosevelt confiscated gold. He didn't like send government troops to people's homes to ransack through their things and shake them down and, you know, and find their gold. They just passed a law and the law said it's illegal to own gold. If you have any gold, you got to come turn it in and we'll give you paper. We'll buy your gold from you, right? If you have an ounce of gold, bring it in. We'll give you 20 Federal Reserve notes. And of course, you could have taken that gold and converted it into silver because you could have taken your 35 Federal Reserve notes and exchange them for silver dollars, right? So you could still own silver. That wasn't illegal. You just couldn't own gold. But they just passed a law and said, hey, if you have your gold, bring it on in and we'll give you the equivalent value. The price of gold was fixed at the time at $20 an ounce. So the government was giving you what the gold in theory was worth because that's where the price had been fixed. Now, a lot of people turned in their gold, right? They were honest, law-abiding citizens. And it was a depression and the government made people think that it was their patriotic duty, that somehow this was for the good of the nation. The reason the government was doing this was to help get us out of the depression, that somehow the depression was caused by people hoarding their gold. I don't know, but so we had to make it illegal to own gold. Of course, the reason that Roosevelt did this was because he wanted to devalue the dollar because the minute he got all the gold, he devalued the dollar and then raised the gold price up to $35 from 20. Now, the only way that Roosevelt could have devalued the dollar relative to gold and get the benefit for the government would be to confiscate all the gold first because he bought the gold from the public at $20 an ounce. And then as soon as the government owned it, it was revalued to $35 an ounce. So the government made a windfall at the public's expense. And that is the reason that they passed the law. Now, a lot of people didn't obey the law. Just like a lot of people smoke pot even though it's illegal. I mean, how many people drank during prohibition? That was illegal too, but people still drank, right? So a lot of people did not turn in their gold and nothing happened to them. I don't think anybody went to jail during the 1930s for not turning in their gold, even though a lot of people didn't. That's why we still have all these gold coins because the gold that was turned in got melted down. So the reason there are so many old gold coins is because those are the gold coins that people held on to. Those are the coins that weren't turned in because the government took all those coins and melted them down and made them into, you know, bars of gold. So apparently Bill Miller is saying, well, you know, 
The government might do that again. They may pass another law that says that you can't own gold, but they're never going to pass a law that says you can't own Bitcoin. Why not? I mean, first of all, if you can ban gold, it's a hell of a lot easier to ban Bitcoin. I mean, making it illegal to own gold, that was a crazy thing to do especially when we were on a gold standard, when the Constitution says that nothing but gold and silver coin shall be legal tender and payment of debt. So clearly what Roosevelt did was unconstitutional, yet he did it anyway. There's nothing in the Constitution about Bitcoin. I mean, banning Bitcoin would be nothing, especially today, given the fact that we have no respect for the Constitution whatsoever. There is no real reason that the government would confiscate gold because they don't need to confiscate gold to devalue the dollar. They just print dollars. There is no value to the dollar. They print as many as they want. They couldn't do that in the 30s when we were on a gold standard. So the rationale for the gold confiscation in 1933 doesn't exist today. The only reason the government would confiscate gold would be because it's confiscating everything. I mean, it might as well confiscate real estate, confiscate stocks. The reality is gold is one of the hardest assets to confiscate because the government doesn't know that you have it. How do they know if you have some gold coins in your house? I mean, if you have a stock portfolio, the government knows about that. If you own real estate, they know exactly where it is. I mean, you know, it's there. You're paying property taxes. They don't know what gold you have unless you tell them. So yes, they can pass a law that says it's illegal to own gold, but can they actually confiscate it from you? No, and they didn't do that in the 1930s. The people who didn't turn it in kept it. And then they obviously were rewarded because the gold became a lot more valuable once everybody else turned theirs in. But today, it's very easy for the government to make Bitcoin illegal. Now, apparently, Bill Miller doesn't even care about that. He's just worried about confiscation. Somehow he thinks that government agents went around door to door seizing people's gold and that they can't do that with Bitcoin because it's digital on the blockchain and you can't confiscate it. They don't have to confiscate it, even though there has been Bitcoin that has been confiscated. Remember all that Bitcoin that the government confiscated that they auctioned off and there's been criminals where they've caught them and they've taken their Bitcoin. So the government has seized Bitcoin. It's not like it hasn't happened before, but they don't have to seize Bitcoin. All they have to do is make it illegal to own it, which is what they did with gold. And then it's going to collapse in price because if they make it illegal to own, now it's contraband. You can't use it. You're stuck with your Bitcoin. You can't convert it to another currency. Now, a lot of people say, well, who cares? You know, it's Bitcoin and one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. Yeah, but what can you buy with a Bitcoin? Nothing. Everything that people want to buy, they have to sell the Bitcoin first. They have to get off of their Bitcoin. That's the rail, right? You take fiat and you buy Bitcoin. And then when you want to buy something else, goods or services, you have to be able to come off. You need an off ramp. You need to be able to sell your Bitcoin for dollars or euros. Well, if it's illegal, the off-ramps are gone. You're just stuck on this highway with no way out. But all of the merchants, they don't want Bitcoin, especially when it's illegal. They could go to jail for accepting it. Bill Miller made a big deal about saying when they made gold illegal to own, you could go to jail for owning it. Well, they could make Bitcoin illegal to own and you go to jail for owning that. But you know what? If they made gold illegal, it's probably a lot safer to own gold and not report it than Bitcoin, because I bet it's a lot easier for the government to find out that you've got some illegal Bitcoin just by tracing 
the history of the internet, right? You're leaving this trail. You know, a lot of these big Bitcoin proponents have come out and said that, hey, if you want to steal money or launder money, don't use Bitcoin because it's easy to track. Well, the government probably is going to know who owns Bitcoin. In fact, on your tax returns now, everybody who fills out a tax return, you have to tell the government whether or not you traded any cryptocurrencies. So you've already told the government on a 1040 that you bought crypto that year. And now if they say, you know, you got to surrender it, you know, well, they know that you got it. You told them you bought it. And of course, the big difference is if the government confiscates your gold, they got to give you the market value, right? They weren't allowed to just take it. They had to pay you what it was worth. So if they confiscated gold again, again, made it illegal to own, they're going to have to buy it from you at a fair market price. And I bet if the U.S. government were to make gold illegal, that would actually be bullish for gold because the dollar is crashing and they have to buy it from you. They can't just take it. They have to give you just compensation. I mean, at least that part of the Constitution would probably be enforced. They just can't take your property without compensating you for it. But if the government said Bitcoin was illegal, and I'm sure it wouldn't just be the U.S. government, it would probably be other governments. But by making it illegal, all of its value is going to crash. And again, I don't even think the government would confiscate it so they don't have to pay you anything. They're just going to make it illegal to use it. And then the value is going to crash and you're going to get nothing for your Bitcoin because your Bitcoin is going to be worthless. It is so much easier today for the government to destroy the value of Bitcoin than it was in 1933 to destroy the value of gold. They didn't even destroy it. Gold went up in value after the government confiscated it. But Bitcoin would collapse in value if the government confiscated it in the same way that it did with gold in that it would make it illegal to transact in it, just label it contraband. So his whole explanation was completely made up. It didn't make any sense to me. Again, he kept saying it's digital gold, except it's better than gold because it can't be confiscated. It's not digital gold. It's nothing like gold and it can be confiscated. That's just part of the lie that the Bitcoin people tell. And again, I expect the craziness to be turned up as the price of Bitcoin continues to fall because there's going to be more and more desperation. You can already hear it in Michael Saylor. I mean, listening to what he's saying, read the stuff that he tweets out. He is getting more and more desperate. And therefore, the stuff he's saying to try to con people into buying is getting more and more crazy. Well, I think we're very close to the bottom dropping out of Bitcoin. I've been saying that on my last few podcasts. If you haven't paid attention to me, you've got this gift horse rally. Bitcoin's around 44,000. I don't even care if it goes higher. I doubt we're going back up to 50. This seems like a good enough rally. Sell into it and do what Paul Tudor Jones is probably doing. Get out of the fake inflation hedges. Get out of the fool's gold. Get into the real thing. Get out of these hyped up, overpriced, momentum, money losing theme stocks and get into real businesses, businesses that actually make good money and pay dividends. And better yet, get out of U.S. stocks into foreign stocks. That is the big trend. That's where the value is. And the rest of the world is not trapped in this monetary roach motel. The rest of the world doesn't have a reserve currency to lose. That's the dollars to lose. And we're going to suffer the consequences. The rest of the world is actually going to reap the benefits because the world has paid a heavy price 
to keep the dollar as the reserve currency because they have had to subsidize the U.S. economy. They have had to bear that burden. And where that burden has been borne the heaviest is in the emerging markets. And the people living there are going to receive the biggest dividend from the collapse of the dollar and the end of the dollar's reign as the reserve currency. And so what you need to do as an investor is recognize how this is going to shake out and align yourself with the winners and divest yourself of the losers.